Phantom stock plans, maybe you've heard of them. What are they? How should they be structured? Who are they for? Are they formal or informal agreements? What does the ideal phantom stock plan look like? And are they only for big companies? My guest estimates he's created nearly 100 phantom stock agreements. Paolo Pasacolin is principal for Baltimore-based Miles and Stockbridge, And across my 30 years of business experience, I've never heard anyone talk about phantom stock plans as clear, concise, and as complete as Paolo does. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. A discussion on phantom stock plans is coming up next. I want to give a shout out to the guys on the Exit Readiness Podcast. That's where I learned about Paolo Pasicola. But let me explain how I found him. Periodically, I'll do a search for the perfect phantom stock plan arrangement. And I get the same results every time. Zilch. Nothing. There are no simple, easy to comprehend books either about phantom stock plans. Hey, do that search too on Amazon you'll strike out there as well. So that's how I started my conversation with Paolo. I wanted to know if he was surprised about the lack of practical content on the web regarding phantom stock plans. Not really, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of which was just going to lead us to jumping right into phantom stock plan is, unlike, let's say, stock options right. or restricted stock or profits interest if you're a partnership. All of these terms are terms of art. So they are found in the internal revenue code and various uh, governmental rulings and regulations and all of that. Phantom stock is not a defined term. It's a made up term. And so, you know, just the Google algorithm it's not going to give you the kind of hits that you would find if you looked for stock options, for example, or restricted stock. And then another way you can find sample documents on Google or on the internet is if you look at the SEC website for all of the publicly filed documents of public companies. And big public companies, um, rarely have phantom stock plans. They will grant phantom stock. They call it restricted stock units is what, they, what, what, they, what public companies call it. And it's usually part of a, an, what they call an omnibus plan or a multi-purpose kind of a long-term incentive plan. It's a plan that allows you to grant different kinds of awards, including stock options, restricted stock, stock appreciation rights, and restricted stock units slash phantom stock. Um, But they don't go by the name of phantom stock plan. So you couldn't just search the SEC archive for a phantom stock plan. You might find one or two there, by the way, but not, um, not kind of the market plan you would see that most people use. Many, many years ago, I was a phantom stock holder, uh, me and about 16, 17 other vice presidents. Uh, we were rewarded handsomely uh, as a result of this tool. Now, here's the thing. No one understood it. 
I mean, it was backed by a legal document. We even had our own in-house uh, legal department, and they tried to explain it to us once a year. I mean, there were some pretty smart people who were, I mean, a lot of us uh, had finance background. We did not understand it. Yet, I still love the concept of phantom stock. Uh, I, I Even though in this case it was hard to understand, I still think this is a great tool, I think especially for uh, trying to provide some incentive for the midterm. Uh, we have short-term bonuses. Uh, there may be, well, in some phantom stock plans where you get something on an exit. Also like that middle territory, maybe five, six, seven years out that a phantom stock plan. So I, I hate to lead the witness, but these are great tools. I, I concur. I, I, I think they're very useful tools. Um, it's a, a very useful tool in a toolbox, and I think it's a very overlooked tool. So you're right. There is some value in understanding phantom stock because it's really not that com- complicated of a concept. Uh, and I think the name phantom stock, I think, scares people away. Uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And of course, the, the flippant part of me or the flippant comment I almost want to make is it's fake stock. <laughs> but uh but there is some truth to that. Hey, before we get into the what, the how, and those mm-hmm. other basic questions of phantom stock, real quickly, tell us about what you do and what your firm does. Sure. Um, I'm an executive, ben- uh, executive compensation and employee benefits attorney. I focus on those things, anything compensation and benefits. So 401k plan stuff, um, stock options, uh, employment agreements, and stuff like that. And I am part of um, Miles and Stockbridge, which is uh, a uh, mid-Atlantic firm um, with our headquarters here in Baltimore. Can I be extremely nosy? And you can always say, I can't answer that. But have you, <laughs> have you implemented a number of phantom stock plans, you and or your I, firm? Yes, I have. I've, I've, at this point, dozens Probably, probably close to like a hundred over the number of Holy years that I've been practicing. Yeah, Holy cow. So we're going to come back to that. Let, let's just ask the most fundamental question. And there are going to be some people who have a rough idea what they are, but let's, let's just start at ground zero. What is a phantom stock plan? This is the answer that you're going to give to a teen, <laughs> to a teenager where uh, you're having a McDonald's hamburger. What is it? What are they? Sure. A phantom stock plan is essentially a complicated bonus. It's a complicated cash bonus. Um, So when I say a complicated cash bonus, let's start with cash bonus. When you receive a phantom stock plan, phantom stock, and you get paid out for your phantom stock, you're going to get cash. They're going to pay you cash. Now, what makes it so complicated if it's just like a bonus? Well, think about it this way. For certain companies and employees, granting equity, an equity award, granting stock or an interest, a partnership interest in a partnership, um, is complicated for various corporate reasons. If you're an S corporation, for example, you have a limit to the number of shareholders you could have. Now, you might want to limit that. You don't want to grant 
shares to your employees because you want to keep it low. Or from the flip side, let's say you're a partnership and you have partnership interest to grant employees, but you don't want your employees to, to kind of experience the consequences of being a partner because there are tax consequences to being a partner. Um, you can't deduct health insurance, for, in, for instance. You have to file a K-1, which is a pain in the neck. If you've ever, if you've, if you, if you filed the K-1, you, you probably know it. But that is a different experience from filing as a W-2 employee. So for various reasons, either corporate or on the employee side, let's say you don't want the grant equity, but you want the recipient to share in the value of the company, the success of the company. So what do you do? You come up with a complicated uh, cash bonus. And the arrangement of this cash bonus is essentially, okay, I'm going to give you every economic right of a stockholder or of a partner in this company, but that's it. So I'll pay you the economic value of a partner, but I'm not going to give you actual equity so you don't have to suffer the consequences. And I will limit, obviously, the number of rights that you have because you're not an actual owner of equity. So if I make distributions, I will pay you a cash payment equal to the amount of the distributions. If I sell the company, I'm going to treat you as a phantom 1% holder of the company so that I'll give you 1% of the sales proceeds of the company if and when we sell. And so... In other words, I'm mimicking equity. I'm giving you phantom equity, kind of pretend equity or fake equity, which are terms you would rather not want to use, right? Because an employee wouldn't want to receive fake equity or you know, pretend equity. So you come up with a more congenial name like phantom equity or synthetic equity, and that's what you have. That's what phantom stock is. I see this as the best of both worlds from the perspective of an owner I don't give up any of, as you said, the rights uh, being a full owner, or if I have a 50-50 ownership, or if I have, like you said, in the S-Corp situation where you may have a handful of owners, I still retain my ownership percentage. I still make all the decisions as the owner, yet, I, as you said, I can treat these other people like owners in terms of them getting the financial benefit, really from a, an employee standpoint. That's the best of both worlds. It's almost like they can't lose. Like this company that we're talking about could have a bad year. They don't have to kick in equity. They don't have to write a check. They don't have to make, they don't have to make payroll payments. So I, I just, again, I love this concept. Next question, formality. Does it need to be in writing? And if so, does it need to be a lot of legalese? Can it be simple? So how formal or how informal? Is that, a, is that an appropriate question? That's a good question. I, I, I get that question. Um, and it's important kind of a, as a question of thinking through the incentive process of what kind of award you're going to give if you're, if you're an owner, if you're an employer. And um, I would tend to say it should be a formal arrangement in most cases. Um, that is not to say that it can never be informal. And I would say here's the exception if you want to have an informal arrangement. 
if you have strong trust in an employee, you have a strong relationship, you've been working, you know, for 20 years, or let's say you're working with a family member and there are other entanglements that, you know, you, that keep you together and you want to have a handshake agreement um, that you want it to be flexible and there's a lot of trust in there and you want to maximize flexibility and you want to minimize any of these legalese and costs or anything like that. If you trust them, you can have a handshake agreement and that can be an informal agreement. And if you're true to your word, there's no problem with having an informal arrangement. And there are some benefits to that as, we, as we'll discuss later. But if you're having a kind of a more arm's length transaction with a with a trusted employee, but who's also skeptical, who's been around, you know, this isn't, you know, uh, the, the old days of the 50s where you work with one company forever. They're going to want some kind of, some proof, some legal document, something, something in writing that they can see that gives them a certain right, that gives them some guarantee that if they stay with you or if they hit a particular performance target, they'll get paid. And that's not necessarily kind of an unreasonable request. Now, as to the complicated language that you experience in, in your profit, in your um, phantom stock award back in the day, that's our fault. That's, that's us lawyers um, making ourselves overly important and writing for other lawyers. Because a contract should be something that a, 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 a person of average intelligence, somebody who's, you know, who's, who's learned, who succeeded in business, should be able to understand it. The fact that you didn't understand it is not your fault so much as the fault of the drafters of, of lawyers making it too legalese. I want to make this very, very, very clear. Even though I side on the position of informal, I'm still going to say to that owner, you take this document, this informal document that you've started on the back of an envelope you're going to give it to Paolo and he's going to check to see if you've stubbed your toe or if there are any unintended consequences. So even though I'm asking the question formal versus informal, I still want any company to go to someone like you and your firm just to make sure, Hey, we're not messing this up or botching this up. So again, right. I want to make that very, very, very clear. I know I know there are going to be some organizations that have never heard of phantom stock. So let's, let's ignore those people for the business owners that have heard of phantom stock. Now I have an opinion before I ask the question. My opinion is that there are more that just don't want to do this in you from your observation, from your work with other organizations, why don't more businesses implement these for the reasons you and I are agreeing that these are great tools, especially for the employees that we want to keep around for a long time? Sure. That's a good question. Um, I think what the one point that we've already discussed, unawareness of this kind of award is one driving reason. The fact that you couldn't Google it, especially these days, because that's, you know, a, a, a person's first resource is probably Google at this point. And so that's a, that's a big impediment. Uh, a second impediment, I think, is a specific demand from a key employee. If you're trying to poach someone or trying, maybe not, maybe that's too strong a language. If you're trying to hire a key employee, um, a CFO or a CEO, somebody who's been to other companies, 
and has experience with stock options, has experience with restricted stock, they might come in and actually demand that from you, in which case it wouldn't work. They're specifically looking for phantom for restricted stock or stock options because they've had they've had that experience in their previous life and you're going to have to go to the bargaining table if um, that's the case. And then lastly, I think, you know, people get bogged down with the complexity, perhaps, of the legal documents. And, and, and they just think, well, look, if I can come up and have this informal arrangement or have a discretionary bonus, right? Lots of companies have discretionary bonuses. If I have a discretionary bonus in the short term for an annual discretionary bonus, why can't I have an discretionary bonus for the medium term for three to five years and have, you know, performance targets. I'll have it in, in, in some piece of paper in an Excel spreadsheet. I'll go through it with my key employees. I'll, you know, look them in the eye, promise they'll trust me. And then we have a handshake agreement. What is more than likely the starting point? Uh, does it start with the conversation? I'm going to make the assumption that let's say I'm a client of yours and I've got a COO and a chief marketing officer. They've been trustworthy. They're dedicated. They work actually even more hours than I want them to work. Sometimes they're on the, they're on vacation. They're still checking their email when I tell them, "What are you doing?" Uh, they they they're committed. They're they're all in. So, is the starting point, Paolo? I've got these two people or these three people. And either A, I've got some ideas or or help me out. Where, where do we get started? What's have been your favorite starting point? The favorite thing I like to ask first is, what are you trying to incent? What are you trying to encourage? You know, what's your goal? What's your goal in creating this compensation vehicle? Is it a short-term bonus? Is it a medium-term bonus? Are you trying to keep them around? for the sale or of a financing of the company. That's step one, right? And then second would be, okay, when do you actually want to pay out? Do you have cash on hand? Can you pay in the intermediate term, in the medium term? Or do you have to wait for a liquidity event? Because a lot of small companies, they can't pay short or medium term. They have to wait for a liquidity event. In which case, okay, we, we can design phantom stock to be, as we discussed, let's say 1% of the sales proceeds. If you stay with me till we sell the company, I'll give you 1% of the sales proceeds. Um, and so that's important. And then I would say, once you figure out, okay, I know when, what I want to create an incentive for. I know my payout scenarios. I, I can have enough money to pay in five years. Oh, I have to wait until the sale of the company. The next step would be, okay, what happens if somebody leaves? Now, usually the, it's an easy answer. If somebody leaves because you, know, you had to fire them because they were stealing from you, you always forfeit any kind of award, even stock options and stuff like that. But what if somebody stays with you for five years really grows the company, right? And then they have to leave because, you know, their wife or their spouse gets sick, they leave on good terms, and then you sell the company in six months, you kind of feel bad, you know, you want to give them, you know, you're thinking, do I give them 
part, though they've already put in the five years. This, this award is a combination of service and getting the company sold. Do I give them the right to get paid? Do I not? So you want to think about, okay, what does the effect of termination of employment have and forfeiting this, this award? And then we can work from there because then the, all of the other things are, are, are minor details. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. What if I came to you and said, I am completely convinced there is not a direct relationship between performance and the phantom stock? What if I believe that I'm not going to get any better, my, my company is not going to perform better because of this phantom stock? So the reason I'm doing it is because I really appreciate these people. It's my way of saying thank you, Mary or Jim. Is that a good reason to have a phantom stock plan? I, I, I'm agnostic on that question in the sense of, I'm, I don't judge what reason you give awards for. If you can express, if you can clearly express a goal to me, I can make it happen. I can make the document happen and kind of tell you the rules of how things are taxed and when you need to tax them and when to pay them and so on and so forth. And we'll, we'll customize this document for you. But that's a perfectly valid reason. And um, I've drafted Phantom Stock exactly like that couple of questions going back. It's more of a follow-up question. You use the example 1%. I'm assuming there's a little bit of a science, a little bit of an art of determining how do I come up with percentages. I, I And I've heard you on another podcast, which is, by the way, outstanding. And we're going to tag that uh, in the show notes. And I think even units, you know, units. And then I think the the host even talked about evaluation. My question is, how do you determine, see, I can't even, I can't even express my question properly or completely, but how do I come up with, okay, I'm going to give you these 100 fictitious units, or I'm going to give you some certain percentage. Is, is there a easier way to remove some of those question marks uh, when designing these? Not really, unfortunately. And, see, and by the way, that was a terrible. I, I, that that was a terrible question because I couldn't express it very well. No, I, I think I understand kind of where you're coming from, and it's really more art than science. Um, there, I, I couldn't even give you a rule of thumb, and and I think lawyers are probably the, the, the not the right person to ask for kind of what's market because what we have are our clients. Right. You know, which is just almost a, a, a random collection of, well, a mom and pop shop, 
you know, a large construction company. We don't know specifically, you, you, you know, the, the, the benchmark, what, you know, an average construction com- company in Missouri gives to key, key CFOs, for example. Um, but to your point, there are only a limited number of ways to look at it. One is a fixed percentage, right? You want to say, look, I want to give you 1%. I want to give you 2% um, of the company if we sell. Um, and when you talk, to, talk about the, the, the issue with that is if you only have one or two people that you're going to give that, that's fine. You're not going to accidentally give away the company. Right, right. Right. If you have one or two people, you give one, two percent to each of them, you're fine. But if you have a plan, a phantom plan where each unit in the phantom plan represents a one percent interest in the company and you start off with one or two, but then you lose track and you keep giving these away to other you know, other uh, employees as, as you become successful and you don't really keep track, soon enough, you might accidentally have given away 20% of the company, right, um, to, uh, to your key executives in a non-dilutive fashion. Because if your simple arrangement is just 1% upon the sale of the company and you don't have any right of dilution, they actually have a, a, a right that's stronger than a 1% shareholder, because a 1% shareholder is subject to dilution if you get financing and more shareholders join, you know, their, their interest gets diluted. But if you have a simple contractual agreement, simple piece of paper that says, I'll sell you 1% of, give you 1% of the sales proceeds, um, you know, you could lose track. And so that kind of created this concept of a pool, right? Where you say, okay, I don't want to. I don't want to lose track. I I, I know I'm I'm uh, you know uh, uh, I'll forget. So what I'll do is I'll just set up a pool. The maximum amount that I'll pay under the plan is ten percent of the sales proceeds, ten percent of the value of the company. And I will divide that pool among the participants in that plan. So if it starts, you start off. I give you. You know, I'm making up a number, a hundred units, and really, the number is is almost made up because right. it's just going to be a simple math. Right. You're just right. going to divide that person, that the number of units granted to one person by the total number of units you've granted to other people, and now you have a fraction of the pool. So it could be a hundred units, or a thousand units, or a million units of a larger pool. That's just all inputs to figure out a fraction. And so that way, when more people come in. Um, you don't, the, the, the pool self dilutes, the maximum is 10%. More people come in, their uh, phantom units get diluted, but then that encourages people and encourages an owner to grant more units over time to, to encourage someone to not just sit on their heels, but to continue providing value to the company so that they can keep their percentage of that pool couple more questions, if that's okay. There are two of them are tax-related and one's very practical. Uh, you brought up a very interesting point a few minutes ago. You used the word funded, and I picked up on that. Uh, let's say you've got a phantom stock plan that provides cash benefit over, not the short term, because that would be a short-term bonus plan that's paid out every year. But let's say under this phantom stock plan, 
there's an element that's paid out if there's an exit or some type of a, a liquidity event. But then you've got that cash event that occurs maybe every five to seven years. So here's the question I have when you brought up the word funded. This may be a stupid question, but I have to ask. Let's say, and I've got some clients who are cash heavy, uh, even in a post-COVID world, we're sitting on some very lofty cash reserves. Let's say that some of those businesses can actually put money aside that can be earmarked just for these five to seven year events to pay out on these phantom stock plans. So here's my stupid question. Is there any way possible that pre-funding a phantom stock plan where that could be tax deductible? And you may not be the person to ask, but I still thought I'd ask. Um, no, there's there's no way to pre-fund Bomber. a phantom stock plan. Bomber. Yeah, yeah. The, the it, uh, Unfortunately, you can set up what's called a rabbi trust. You may have come across this no. uh, before where um, you set this aside for a specific corporate purpose, meaning you can't use it for any other corporate purposes except to pay out um, under a... a under your phantom stock plan, but it's still subject to creditors and it's an unfunded trust. So you can't get the tax deduction up front. Um, because like I said earlier, a phantom stock plan is just a complicated bonus. So the taxation on the employee and the employer side um, are as you would think uh, a bonus is, which is you get taxed when paid. Ordinarily, this is the general rule, you get taxed when paid uh, as wages. And that's where the employer takes the deduction when you pay it. And and again, I thought that was the answer, but I still felt like I needed to ask the question I want, because I know that's going to come up because Mark, I want to be able to uh, pre-fund this. And by the way, I, I love the idea of any business pre-funding so that cash, because otherwise where, where's that cash going to come from? Uh, are they mm-hmm. going to use this year's profits to pay out based on profits that have been earned over the last five or six years? Maybe those dollars have already been spent. So I, I think one of the lessons here is if you have a midterm benefit, it better be funded somehow. That cash has to come from somewhere. Next question will be a quick question or an easy answer, hopefully, is these phantom stock plans, are they under the... Uh, in terms of uh, regulations, IRS, uh, labor laws, are there are there any issues there that we have to be in compliance with? Um, I'll I'll start with the uh, securities laws that you don't need to comply with. How about that? That's fair. Um, <laughs> um, one of the benefits of phantom stock is they're not actual stocks, so they're not actual securities. So you don't have to comply with the securities laws, the SEC um, rules. If you're granting stock options, you need to follow Rule 701, for example, and you know count the value of the awards that you've granted. You don't need to um, uh, file securities filings with the state. Um, you're in Missouri, I think. Yes, I'm in um, Missouri. Uh, it, it, there are there are you, you actually don't have filings. Um, if you grant stock options to employees, but there are certain other jurisdictions like New York or California where you still need to do that. Um, but that doesn't apply to, to um, uh, phantom stock. 
And as I mentioned, in terms of tax reporting, it's just like a bonus. You worry about taxes uh, if and when you pay them. So there's no issue there and as it, a general rule. You could, you could create a complicated phantom stock where you need to pay when uh, an award is earned, but you have a later payment date where you split up FICA versus income tax. Right. Um, but in general, a phantom stock is usually, it, you have a target, like a performance performance right. goal or right. sale of the company. If you stay until then, you get paid. And that's when the, the tax event happens for all parties. So I've known you for all of about 35 minutes. We've had a couple of emails <laughs> back and forth. So I, I'm going to push the envelope and just say, I want you to write a book uh, that's no more than 100 pages on <laughs> phantom stock plans. And, and I think we've got some good chapter headings for it based on this conversation. So I'm going I'm to hold you to it, sir. Uh, so let's, let's pretend like this book is going to become a reality. And let's say you have a chapter on there about the best phantom stock plan you've ever implemented not from your point of view or from the client's point of view, is there one plan that just really stands out where you feel like everybody won, you know, the business, the business owner won, uh, the employees won, obviously your firm winning because you did, you, you provided something that added just this ton of value. Is there a story that would be included in this book that you will be writing? (laughs) Once one, I, I, I still have small kids, so one, one, one day. Um, but I, I don't really have kind of a sexy story that uh, it's sad to say, but I have to say I, there are boring stories that I'm very happy with. Okay. In other words, we could work with that. When you, when you set up a simple plan, a sim- simple stock plan for a key executive, where, like we said, it was just, it's very simple, either a pool or a fixed percentage upon the sale of the company. And the executive was very happy with it, caused him to stay. There was a sale of that company and they paid out under the plan. And in connection with the sale, kind of when they when all of the lawyers from the New York firms come, you know, come down from the from the private equity and examine the books and everything like that, they didn't find any problems. It was it it was smooth sailing. They appreciated not having to worry, complicate the deal by having to cash out options and get releases and so on and so forth. And they saw this phantom phantom equity and they paid out. And everything went smoothly and, and the uh, owner of the company made his money and now he can kind of like retire a happy man. When, when I see that, that kind of, um, that, that, that does give me, give me some pleasure. I write on three different websites regularly. Do I have permission for you to be on my short list of one firm? Anytime Phantom Stock comes up, do I have permission to point them to you and your firm? Absolutely. This has been phenomenal. Paolo, thank you very, very much for being on the show. My pleasure. I'm so glad you stumbled upon my name. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. 
lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now, back to our host, Mark Gandy. It's at this time I normally would remind you of the book that our guest has written. So here is hoping that Paolo Pasacolin will someday write a simple and readable book on phantom stock plans. If this conversation has intrigued you, my recommendation is to check out the Miles and Stockbridge website where Paolo is a principal. Their website is mslaw.com. Again, mslaw.com, and you'll even find Paolo's email address on their website. In the weeks to come, we'll be talking to one of the co-authors of Becoming Trader Joe. Mary Childs is the co-host of Planet Money. Her new book is The Bond King, and I cannot wait for that show to be released. And we'll be chatting with the author of The Founders, the story of PayPal, and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. Guys, many thanks for listening. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Hi, everyone. This is Brian Jones of The Table Group and the author of Ordinary Greatness, available wherever fine books are sold. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf. I do not let seven days go by without listening to this podcast.